Welcome back to the All Goes Mainstream podcast. On today's show, we welcome a veteran inventor, a champion of portfolio construction, a master of micro VC. Chris Duvos has taken a mosaic of experiences as an allocator at both endowments and funds that have worked on behalf of institutional investors to found Ahoy Capital in 2018, which in his words is an intentionally right-sized firm focused on working with smaller emerging VC managers. A pioneering investor in the micro VC movement, Chris has been a mainstay in venture capital for decades. At Ahoy, he discovers and partners with smaller VC funds to help drive returns for his LPs, being seen as a bird dog in the valley for many institutional investors who lack the access, network, and knowledge of the early VC landscape to Chris's degree. Chris has been embedded in the venture world for years, dating back to the early 2000s. Prior to Ahoy Capital, Chris spearheaded investment efforts at Venture Investment Associates and the Investment Fund for Foundations. He initially learned the craft of private markets investing at Princeton University's endowment, although he earned his BA and MBA from Yale. Chris and I had such a fun and fascinating discussion about venture in the emerging VC landscape. We discussed how the business of venture has changed, why there's always room for a Bucati when the market has a lot of Fords and Toyotas, what he learned from Doug Leone at Sequoia in his early days as an allocator at Princeton, and how it's informed how he invests today, why it's tough to be a mid-sized fund in today's venture market, why he believes that concentration is key as an LP, and that diversification can lead to diversification and why he believes smaller fund sizes can lead to outperformance. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the podcast to share your wisdom and lessons learned from decades in venture. We hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Chris, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Well, maybe I should say ahoy. Here we go. So, <laughs> ahoy. The meaning of ahoy, people just think of it as a a generic word. It's actually a word in Dutch that means a cheerful hello. Sailors used to yell it out to each other, like to say, what's up, dude? So it's 17th century, what's up from the age of sail. I love it. We're going back in time to go forward. So what was the genesis of the name? Was there something behind Ahoy? The the genesis was it's just really hard to name something. And when we lifted out the funds that we'd been managing from our old shop VIA after my partner passed away, we were looking around for names and every single website was taken. And I was talking to actually one of my investors, a big endowment investor, and, and he said, whenever you pick up the phone, you always say Ahoy. And that's actually a, a gesture to Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons, who picks up the phone and says Ahoy is kind of a gesture to his being out of touch with the times because that's what Alexander Graham Bell wanted you to say. So I pick up the phone and say, Ahoy. And it's a little anachronism. He said, what about Ahoy Capital? And I typed it in. And sure enough, Ahoy Capital was free. And we set sail. How many people get the reference as to why you do that? It's funny because there's some people who instantly go, is that a Montgomery Burns thing? And then there are other people who don't even know who Montgomery Burns is or who the Simpsons are. So... I just let it slide. I love it, though, because it does symbolize starting a journey. And you've been on a journey in the venture world for a number of years. So that's where I'd love to start, which is 
how has the industry changed since you've started and how has it evolved? Oh my gosh. Well, I started in venture as a young associate at Princeton's endowment back in 2001. What's funny is I always joke around, I was a generalist when was supposed to focus on real assets, which is a story in itself. Then our venture guy quit and went to another university. It was 2001, so Venture was really in the doldrums. In my memory, we're sitting at a, a Monday meeting and they're basically like, all right, so who wants to do Venture? And it turned into like the nose game where everybody's like, and then I look around and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm the Venture guy. It was an amazing time because 2001 really was the doldrums. I would be going to these meetings and there's nobody at these meetings because it was the most unloved asset class. So I got some really great one-on-one -on -one time with people like Henry McCants at, at Greylock and Doug Leone at Sequoia and Princeton had such a great portfolio and just being able to learn from those guys in such an off cycle. It felt like being at a ski resort in the summer. You get the crazy like mountain bikers running around, but the real reason for being is kind of not present. So I learned a ton during that time and it was amazing. To answer the question directly, boy, I look back even 0304. Venture was such a small business. I remember in 02 or 03, like $5 billion raised. Now that's like a moderate sized fund. In fact, I remember when I was thinking about leaving Princeton, I got into a conversation with a big pension plan. And in 2004, they wanted to do a billion dollars in US venture. And I'm like, wow, that's five to 10% of the entire industry. That's crazy. Obviously, the size has changed considerably. Sophistication has gone way, way up. I don't want to be like the old guy who shakes his fists at clouds and says, oh, the good old days. There's a lot of things that are better. Entrepreneurs are so much more sophisticated. Finance is so much more friendly, itself more sophisticated. I think about something that I, I had the good fortune to be in the early innings of, which was the evolution evolution of and emergence of the micro VC movement. And underlying that was a real entrepreneur friendliness, a, a re-envisioning of the venture firm as a service provider. These are all things that are really constructive changes in the industry. I look at where we are today, and even big funds, and I have this knee-jerk version to bigness, but I look at some of the things like, obviously, what A16Z has done with the resources that they bring, and some of these people who aren't necessarily my cup of tea, but they're bringing actual real services and real value to entrepreneurs. And that's a real change and, and makes me really optimistic. There, there's so much to unpack there. I think at the kernel of what you're saying is there's so much that's evolved with the business of venture or asset management. I'd love to start there and there's a, a host of questions to, to go on from there. So first, you mentioned that you talked relatively early on in their lives with Doug Leone or Henry McCants from Greylock. And way back then, did you have an idea or did they have a vision for building what they've built today at the institutions that they you know, created? It's really interesting because the real kind of turbocharging, and those are just two firms at random, but the real turbocharging at those firms in terms of size happened after I left Princeton in 04. I went to TIFF and really pivoted that portfolio to microcap VCs. I remember sitting with Doug in 2002 or 2003, he said, if we ever raise a China fund, that'll be you know, the end for me. I forget exactly what he said, but he's kind of being salty about it. And two, three years later, they had a big initiative in China. And by the way, I love to repeat this every time I get the chance because it's one of the touchstones of wisdoms. Henry McCants said to me in maybe 2002, he said, venture works really well when time is cheap and capital is expensive. 
when time gets dear and capital gets cheap, watch out. That's what happened in the kind of late 90s. But then you think about there's a real tension between that and bigness because you see these large firms, they just have to move at startup speed. Right? It's tough the bigger you are. It's tough sometimes to turn those super tankers. And so you see, and I don't want to name anybody in specific, but we saw, I, I talked to a large fund investor who said, I don't believe in this. I I know this because I pulled this slide from my 2021 annual meeting because we just did our, our annual meeting this year. And a GP I know in town here said, I don't believe in patterns anymore. I just believe in speed. And that's the kind of stuff that happens when you get big. But there's a lot of really smart people who make a lot of money in big funds. Again, it's just not my cup of tea. But that moment in 2001, 2002 is maybe like a little bit of kind of naivete. And the acceleration didn't start in earnest, I think, until probably 2000. 10, 11, 12. So what do you make of this evolution of venture where you do have these very large platforms and that are now multi-stage as well? There's a reason why they're doing that. But then there's also smaller funds and you were a very early proponent of the micro VC movement. Would love to hear your thoughts on what you make of the business of venture as we've kind of evolved into this large multi-strat platform firm and then small, more artisanal focused size fund. The way I think about it is I, my son is really into cars from all these video games. I think of these companies like Koenigsegg or, or whatever, whoever makes these $500,000 supercars. There's always going to be room for Bugatti in a world that's dominated by Fords and Toyotas. Any large market segments and ventures become a large market. It, where I think it's interesting is there's been this real barbelling. And I think one place where it's really tough to live is in the midsize because you're kind of neither fish nor fowl. In my early career before business school, I, I worked at Mike Porter's strategy firm. And Mike had the kind of two Porterian privileged positions. You can either be low cost or you can be differentiated. And I think every market tends to that. Actually, I use the word low cost. The way I think about it, and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for saying this, I do think as firms get larger, it really affects their cost of capital. It starts to change the dynamics, it starts to change the interest alignment. That's why I'm so personally focused on smaller firms. I took David Swenson's class, the guru of the Yale Endowment, I took his class in 1992, and he would rail against multi-product firms and larger firms. And so that's unfortunately in my DNA, in some cases to my great detriment. But these larger firms, I think as you get larger, you're competing with different types of firms and the marginal dollar always sets the price. And when there are more marginal dollars, the price and the price being articulated as prospective returns, the price is, is lower. The, the price that you pay is higher, reducing the price of the, the return to that investment. Why do you think the quality may become more challenging when you're at a larger firm? Or does the quality of the team, of the investments they make, uh, of their ability to think about valuation change when they're at a larger firm? And is that why you think smaller firms may generate better returns in many cases? In some cases, the quality of the people might be higher. There are a lot of really smart people in this business, far smarter than me. And, and there are a lot of people who figured out how to make money. What I think two things change. One thing that's really important that changes is interest alignment. 
the arithmetic gets really different in terms of what makes sense as a return to the firm. The, the mix of what I say, W-2 income versus cap gains income, that kind of changes in terms of vanishing fees versus carry um, expectations. And the hurdle just seems lower. So you have kind of a misalignment of interest. And then the other thing is, again, the scarcest commodity that any of us have is time. And the way I've seen larger funds behave in the smaller market is more of a kind of a spray and pray. They're fewer artisanal. There are a few large firms that can offer an artisanal approach, but they offer other things. Smart people have figured out ways to compete. But I think that for me, that's why I prefer the small market is the interests are more aligned and the time commitment at those earliest stages in the DNA setting stage of a startup's life are the things that I really focus on. What do you think founders want more? Do they want smaller fund? At early stage, or do they want bigger funds? Uh, it's a great question. And I struggle with this all the time because I have this platonic ideal of a founder who wants Bill Trenchard from first round to call him up and woo him and to do the seed round after one of my pre-seed managers has done the pre-seed and everybody's got their great spot in this capital continuum. But the reality is what founders want is the least dilution. They just want somebody to pay up. There's a moment for me in 2003 where I was talking to a founder and they said, this Sand Hill Road firm just came in and offered me eight on eight, which by the way, today seems quaint, like eight on eight, raising eight at eight pre. That seems really quaint today, but back then it was a lot of money. The founder actually said, I don't know what I could do with $8 million. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the perfect founder. Today, the founder would be like, well, we need a golden Buddha statue for the office and we need... And so I do think larger funds can compete by offering founders less dilution because at the end of the day, they're in the business of putting out dollars. They just want to buy the option on subsequent rounds where they can put the meaningful dollars to work. So you're saying something interesting that ties to the other side of the world, which is the LP world, saying their job is to put out dollars, VC funds, that is. What do you think LPs want? when it comes to size. Answering the question what LPs want is impossible. It reminds me of one of these 1960s Don Draper print ads, what do women want? Everybody wants something different and different types of people are constrained by the institutional milieu in which they operate. Everybody wants outstanding returns and to have GPs that have high integrity and invite them to their helicopter and helicopter out a state on Kauai because we've all made so much money in the interim. But the reality is some people have to focus on types of investing where they can push a lot of dollars out. And I do have a bias that the bigger the fund size, the more constrained the upside tends to be. But if you're at a large pension fund, there are a lot of smart people in people in pension funds, and you got a venture target of X and you've got to fill that bucket, at some point you're investing in the marginal opportunity. And I think we see that articulate itself a lot. If you go and ask 30 LPs who the 10 best venture funds are, you actually get about 220 different answers that populate that list. And it's because some people just don't have access to things that are exciting and nimble, and they're focused on funds where they just can put dollars to work. I think you're bringing up a bunch of really interesting points here. And, and I think what this distills down to is that GPs are selling two different customer types. There's an enterprise customer and there's a non-enterprise customer, enterprise being more endowment, pension, et cetera. And you have to just productize for the right customer. There's no right or wrong. It just has to be what the right is for your strategy and who the, who the customer is. Now, there's so many different and competing aspects to all of this that I'm going to throw out a few different pieces and, and have you unpack them because I think 
they're kind of instructive when it comes to thinking about the different contours of venture. And given your focus on micro VC, I think it could be really interesting to hear your perspectives on that. So one is obviously that it's generally easier to return return a fund or generate multiples on a fund when there's a smaller fund size. There's been data that's shown that it's easier on a 10 or 20 or 30, $40 million fund just by virtue of the sheer size of overall exit value you need to have. Now, of course, portfolio construction matters, how much how much you own of a company matters and all of that. But more often than not, easier to return 2 or 3x or 4x on a 20 or $50 million fund than it is on a billion dollar fund. The other side of this is that brand seems to matter in venture and there has been persistence in performance and there's obviously data from Dave Clark at Vencap who said that he's obviously doing more series A fund than seed funds, but that there's going to be a handful of companies in any given vintage that are going to return the majority of the capital in any given year in venture. and more likely than not, the, the biggest brands or the best funds are probably going to be able to either access those deals or win those deals. How do you reconcile some of those things of what I just said, where it's like brand matters in venture, but also size matters in venture? That's like the fundamental tension. And uh, a lot of smart people come to the table with a lot of good data. And I think it's all true. Everything is true. And I do subscribe to the kind of there are 20 deals that matter every year. I also subscribe to what I've gone around calling Buffett's equation, although I can't find any record of Buffett ever saying this. I have no idea where I, or maybe this came to me in a dream, but I call it Buffett's equation. So I sound smarter. Opportunity equals value minus perception. And if you think about it in the public markets, like at some level, you've got value that's more steady because these are more mature businesses, but perception is articulated in, in PE. As the PE, there's like mean reversion is the third most, most powerful force in the universe. It's gravity, entropy, and mean reversion. And so what happens is, and, and, and we see this particularly in the, the past X number of years, from a large fund perspective, the million dollar check you wrote to the company at pre-seed or, or seed might move the needle. Maybe you get a hundred X on that on a big, big winner. But I've talked to a lot of big fund people and they're like, but at the end of the day, it was our series B that really, in terms of dollar thump, moved the needle for us because that's where we got the most dollars to work and got the biggest return on those dollars. But the reality is in venture, one of the problems we have is that by the time a company's large enough for a large fund to make a investment in that company with conviction, it's a de-risked, whatever, you pay a higher valuation. They'll say, well, we're paying a higher valuation because it's de-risked. The problem is in, in venture, you have this recursion between value and perception. And like people really believe in things and they think that's really driving value. In some cases it does, in cer certain kinds of companies it does, and you get this recursion. And then by the way, you weaponize the balance sheets with big rounds of financing, and then it, these things become inevitable, sometimes until they aren't. In fact, I had a, a venture guy in here who's been around the business since the 80s. And he said, venture is the business of heartbreak. There's so many things in this business that just break your heart. And really since 2008, and even really before that, it's been too easy. And because it's been too easy, all these mid-stage companies, by the time they're obvious, are getting really bid up. And Ben Horowitz said famously in 2011, there are 20 companies that matter. And to be in those 20 companies, it doesn't matter the price you pay. Well, if you revert to Buffett's equation, it sure does. We're seeing down IPOs, we're seeing down exits, we're seeing all that in the market now, even big, big deals. I don't want to belabor that point. For me, it all comes back to arithmetic. I want a 3X. For me to get a 3X, a GP's got to do like a three and a half X. And if they got a billion dollar fund and they own on average 10% of those companies, you just do the arithmetic. They've got to create whatever it is, market cap.
like um, 36 billion for me to get my 3x. And that's a lot of market cap. I've been telling this story for 20 years. When I used to say that Equal Logic, which was the biggest all cash M&A to that point in 2000, was a 1.4 billion deal. And YouTube sold for $3 billion. Like, how are you going to have $30 billion exits? Well, the world changed a little bit and I was kind of slow to perceive that. Maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy in that regard. So maybe the arithmetic is coming to these guys. But I still think at the end of the day that there's a, a force of gravity that makes smaller funds more attractive. I think th that all makes sense. I do want to touch on the last point that you just said, which is sometimes it's so hard to see into the future and see how big something can actually become. Do you think we now live in a world where going forward, certainly that's been the case if you look back the last 10 years or so, I think companies have gotten to size and scale, markets have gotten to size and scale that maybe we couldn't have predicted at the time, now only counterfactually we can. Do you think that's the case going forward as well, where it's like, we're still underestimating how big companies can become and how that's big outcomes really may be? That's a really great question. My crystal ball's in the shop. Um, here's my two cents. I think that one of the biggest changes that I've seen is the degree to which venture-backed companies over the last 22 years that I've been doing this, the degree to which venture-backed companies are disrupting the offline economy. When I first started doing this, it was a lot of infrastructure, some consumer, all that was kind of nifty. Even e-commerce, which everybody looks back at that a golden age of the, the early days of e-commerce, those are still smallish companies. Whereas today, you can see the trend lines, but it, it's a famous, I think it's called Amara's Law. Every innovation is overhyped in the short term and underhyped in the long term. And I think we're, we're seeing a little bit of that. And I think where we are in the hype cycle right now, there's a real question of how richly the private market is valuing companies. And we have a lot of late stage participants, a lot of these crossover investors who are pricing things like public market investors plus a little bit of a premium. So a lot of the value creation has shifted. Josh Koppelman wrote a great blog post, uh, Josh from First Round, a great blog post in like 2008 or nine, comparing venture-backed companies pre 2000 two and post 2002 and the valuations at which they went public, even throwing in Netflix and Salesforce in there. And there was so much upside captured by public market participants. And today, a lot of that Uber, I think, is trading where it went out. Like a lot of these companies, the late stage private market is capturing a lot of the, the value upside. The question for people like me is, OK, how do we get liquid? How do we put that moolah in the Kula? Because it doesn't help me if Tiger comes in and does a richly valued Series E if my guys can't sell into that. So now we got to wait for it to go public. It goes public. Look at Clavia, like great company or Instacart, great companies, right? Really important businesses that valuations where valuations got ahead of them in the private market. And people like me are like, okay, now we got to wait six months in the public market for the lockups to expire. And during that time, all these public market investors are like, wait a second, we thought we were going to get 3x from the IPO price. What, what's up with that? And we're like, our stomachs are churning. It kills me dead. You're bringing up a really interesting point on smaller managers and how they may navigate a new world where there may be alternate paths to liquidity. You grew up in the business when secondary markets didn't really exist and it was even considered kind of bad form to sell secondary, right? No, you, you hold till the IPO because you have to believe in the company and, and everybody believed in that. That seems like it's changed. Now, what do you look for in the managers you work with, the smaller managers in terms of how they think about 
exits and liquidity that maybe is different from when you were investing prior. People have rules about this where they encourage their managers, like when you got a whatever X, take half, it's formulaic. I don't have any kind of specific guidance like that. Rather, one of our managers who's done this really successfully lightened their positions in some decacorns or whatever that are now apparently overvalued. So kudos to them. And I won't say who they are because again, there is a, still a, a whiff of stigma, but they basically talk about, does a company have a leaky bucket? And by leaky bucket, talking about CAC and LTV feels so 2016. But what ends up happening is in a lot of these types of businesses, CAC continues to go up. The marginal customer is so expensive to acquire. It doesn't have that LTV. And if you're constantly refilling the bucket, we've seen some of that with these commerce companies that have gone public, subscription commerce especially. And so that's the thing. How's the net retention looking? Like really focus on some of these metrics that show you that this company has like a next wind. It's not just going to plateau because once it plateaus from a valuation perspective, it's toast. Do you think that some of the things you're saying, because I think as investors in this time period, we live through more of the ups and downs or seeing on paper things looking great. And then obviously not having that kind of value as like you say, Mula and the cool actual DPI that matters. Does this make venture investors going forward, particularly at the early stages, maybe think more about risk, number one, and two, where I'm getting at is, should they have more of a trader mentality? I know that's kind of a crude way to say it, because we're not the hedge fund industry as venture investors, but should they be more like stock pickers and hedge fund-like investors of managing risk as well? It's such an important question, because I would say as an industry, we don't think about risk. There's not really a language for risk. And it's interesting because, you know, I kind of grew up a little bit at Princeton and I was like the model jockey for all the optimizations and, and, and stuff and asset allocation stuff. And there's no language for venture in that world either, but you put on a plot and it's like volatility. What does volatility mean in venture? For me, risk in venture is that your VP of engineering quits because his or her partner moved to be in the Peace Corps in Venezuela. That's risk. And it's these kind of binary existential risks. There's, there's technology risk. There's product market fit risk. There's all these risks that you just can't quantify. I could try to put all kinds of Ivy League veneer on what I really want to say, but in a lot of cases, it's just vibes. We're kind of investing on vibes. And I do want people to be more cognizant, but what I want them to be more cognizant of is the vibe. Every company has its own vibe and it kind of ebbs and flows. The problem is as locked up investors, there are more ways to put Moolah in the cool. We've seen an emerging secondary market. We're seeing a lot of people looking to buy up in later rounds. There's been a lot of that stuff. Some of that might be bull market stuff that, that fades away. But I am encouraging people to think more about liquidity and, and actually on the buyout side, Hellman and Friedman does an outstanding job because what they do is they sit down with their portfolio. I think it's every quarter, every six months. And they basically say, okay, here's our portfolio. Let's re-underwrite each of these companies and see what the prospective return is to us from here. Does that meet our hurdle rate? And it's not like they're trying to sell the next buyer a bag of junk. The next buyer might have something that they themselves can do to reinvigorate that company. Might see some value to unlock that, that Hellman and Friedman might not want to engage in because the horizon might be too long or whatever. But man, if venture people thought more constructively about the go forward kind of prospective returns and could act on that, that would actually change the industry completely. Is what you're getting at that eventually venture will become more like private equity or would it benefit from an approach where 
there was more private equity like thinking as things got to growth slash buyout stage. We would benefit from that. Whether it actually gets executed or implemented is a whole nother question. Certainly in the early stage, I think the dominant kind of vibe is that people want to be entrepreneur friendly and entrepreneur friendly kind of means ride or die. And you're kind of lashed to the mast until this thing exits. Now we do see some people wriggle out of that, particularly in the later stages. But I think Part of the magic of venture, and it is a magic, a particular magic, is being on a journey together. And I think that there's a magic to that. And that's actually why there's so much heartbreak in the business as well, because you've been on a journey with individuals and a team trying to change the world, do something important for the world. And when it doesn't work out, it, it really does tear at, at your heart. That mentality is so ingrained in what we do. I don't think it would reverse. You mentioned... A word in there that I think gets to the heart of allocating to funds in a sense too, as an LP, which is magic. And to your point, there's a lot of qualitative assessments, particularly in the micro VC and emerging manager landscape where you spend your time that you have to evaluate. How do you evaluate micro VCs, particularly when there may not be a ton of data to go off of? You have to assess this magic, like you say. So how do you do all that? We have a four-part evaluation methodology. First, we want to understand the people. And in understanding the people, it's not just understanding their edge and, and where they have some unfair advantage, but it's also understanding their behavioral footprints. Like how committed are they to different things? What risks do they fear? What opportunities do they embrace? That's where my job almost becomes akin to kind of a psychotherapist. And sometimes, especially with teams, I'll sit people down and I'll meet with them together and then separately and then bring them back together again. And, and, and understand that behavioral footprint. That's something that's really important to, to us. But table stakes is having some sort of unfair advantage. The second leg of the four-legged stool is understanding the strategy. And it's not that I have particularly strong views about different strategies. I have biases, but there are a lot of smart people out there pursuing a lot of different things, some of which I might not vibe with, but they're still great money makers nonetheless, and I want to back those people. But it's understanding the strategy and its resonance with the people. And sometimes you're like, wow, you people are trying to do something that is completely inconsistent with your backgrounds and where you've come from and, and where you want to go. And that's actually a really hard kind of resonance to understand. Sometimes it's obvious that, that it's wrong. Out of the people in the strategy falls the portfolio. And that's where we spend a lot of time. And, and I say portfolio, and, and that, that's not only portfolio of investments, but, but body of work. Maybe that's the word I should start using for it. So you know, we back a lot of people who are ex-entrepreneurs. I, I do have a bias for people who've been investing other people's money at different times in their lives, because that's a definite unique skill set. But understanding the body of work and understanding where this person made an impact. I'm very much from the David Swenson Ventures, a catalytic asset class school. But understanding also where they got into deals in very competitive situations where they didn't get into things, where they made situations better, sometimes where they made situations worse. Understanding that totality really illuminates the people and the strategy in action. And then out of that falls performance, which is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. That's the frustrating thing with asset management is you all, almost always start with performance. But I've seen so many times, the reality is the evaluation horizon is so long in venture. Like the average fund lasts twice 
as long as the average American marriage. The true valuation horizon is really, really long. You get telltales early-ish, but still those things can get drilled. But really to the point from investment to telltales is sometimes longer than people's career arc in different LP seats, certainly longer than people's attention spans and definitely longer than the fundraising cycle. So performance is almost a useless indicator to me at this point. On that point, does that mean you underweight performance? and overweight those other three parts of the strategy? Yeah, I think that's definitely where we are today. One of the challenges is we've lived through such a rollicking bull market that every fund that I see has outstanding performance, and I call this syndrome syndrome. So for anybody who's watched the movie The Incredibles, the bad guy's named Syndrome, and Syndrome says famously, when everybody is super, nobody will be. Can we make the super so commonplace as it says to be blasé? At one point in 2018, and things have only gotten better since then, I tabulated the, the mean, mean average IRR of a fund that came through, not weighted by dollar, but weighted by number of funds, was like 37%. And it's just like, what do I do with this? How did you start to pick apart in, in a time when it was harder to tell that performance was driven by different things? Were there certain things that you found or looked for that did delineate whether or not someone was actually a great manager or was buffeted by the market? I think in venture, it's always been really hard to tell through perf interim performance. Uh, what always stuck out to me was when you looked at the portfolio, you weren't looking at the number performance per se, um, but you were looking at which companies were the impact companies. Could those two or three or four companies in any given fund really have an impact? There's a guy that I actually worked with before business school who now runs a fund in New York, Brad Sferluga, who runs primary venture partners, really smart guy. And he and I were talking one day and he threw something out. He says, you know, I want each one of my companies to return the effing fund. And I said, oh, RTFF. For children, I call it RTFE, return the fund equivalent. So I started looking at portfolios and I'm like, okay, so here's the portfolio. Here's your ownership. Here's your fund size. Here's the valuation of these companies. If each of these companies exited today, your ownership, et cetera, what size exit would you need for that individual company to return the whole fund? And you do this for the whole fund. Some funds you look at and you're like, wow, every single company in this fund has to have a billion dollar outcome to return you know, the fund. And maybe some of those might, but you're like, wow, the arithmetic on that is really tough. And then you can look at comps or whatever. We have one emerging manager that has this one company that is absolutely, actually, I'll say the company like Anderil. They're a seed investor in Anderil. And if the company exited at this financing, it's like 8x the fund financing that was done most recently. Do I think there's upside from here? Well, I certainly don't think it's going to be down 87%. This is a company that returns the fund. And how did they get into it? They've been helpful to the company at all. Then you do all that stuff. That's how performance comes into play for me. So what you're saying really understanding what drives performance. How much in your mind then does size matter? I think fund size really drives the arithmetic. At that point, a math problem. You invest X dollars, you own Y percent of the company, and if it exits at Z, that returns Q dollars to the fund. And you have to ask yourself the question, is that enough? A real formative moment for me in my early venture career was, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Equalogic, which is a storage company that sold to EMC in 2002, I think. It was the largest all-cash M&A up until this time. And there were two venture firms in it that both owned 22.5% 
of the company. So you're like, oh my God, the biggest cash M&A ever, a billion for outcome in a time when that was unheard of. And they did the right things. They each owned 22 point. In one case, it returned half of the underlying fund. And in another case, it returned a third of the underlying fund. And that was a symptom that these funds had just gotten so big. And I was like, my God, you did everything right here. And you have to do that twice more to return your fund. So I get my money back. How's this possible? One of a great outcome for us was a company called Mint Mobile. The first round, it was a seed in benchmark to the A and they sold to Intuit for $170 million and first round made out like a bandit. I remember talking to somebody who had talked to somebody at, at benchmark and benchmark said, yeah, that was a fine outcome for us. It was like a three, four X in a year and a half. They're like, we can't afford to have many more exits like that. What a mindset. That's why those guys are such G's, right? They are the bomb. Anyone would be like, we sent three, four X back to our investors on this deal in a year and a half. What a great IRR. Well, you know, as they say in the hedge fund world, Miller Motorcars, which is the Aston Martin, Ferrari, whatever dealer in, in Greenwich, Miller Motorcars does not accept IRR as a form of a lease payment. It's Moolah and the Kula, right? And the point on Mint from the benchmark perspective is, wow, we invested our time and energy and a slot in this company and we needed it to make a big thump in the portfolio and it did it okay but it was a, a pop gun not a cannon wow what a mindset if everybody had that mindset i'd be so much more excited about this business so if you could construct your ideal fund venture fund size focus stage B build us a venture fund here oh my gosh for me it's a mosaic i have to ad admit i'm such a first round fanboy i have loved first round since almost before it was named first round i see a lot of what they did their mantra is turning venture on its head i remember sitting there with josh koppelman in 2003 and 4 in the conchahawk and marriott outside of philly we're nearby our, both of our offices where said, look, venture is a hub and spoke model oriented around a GP at the middle. We have all these peer-to-peer -peer models now. Why don't we create a platform where entrepreneurs can interact with each other and be the best source of learning for each other? Several firms have done stuff like this. I love these platform-intensive managers like True has done that really well, a bunch of others. So I love that platform dynamic. I love partnerships. There's a lot of people who are excited about solo GPs. We've got a couple in our portfolio, but I love people who have thought partners. They don't have to be best friends. In fact, when they're all like too good of friends, there's a famous firm coming out of the dot-com bubble that didn't do that great, that came together as a power band, where everybody said it's the lead GP and his five best golf buddies. That's not a great firm. It's people where people are mixing it up and in the tumult and have humility. So a lot of the psychographics, and again, First Round does a lot of stuff with data. They're relentless in how they keep track of decisions and how to use that decision data to drive better decisions going forward. So that real reflectivity is really important to me in the, in the context of a partnership. And in terms of size, like everybody asks me kind of size, we barbell our portfolio, but it's almost like saying for some people, different varieties of snow to Eskimos. Because for most people, barbell is like really big and really small. For us, it's we've got a bunch of managers in that 25 to $55 million range or 25 to 75, really, let's call it. And then I also am a big fan of the $150 million fund that can protect its ownership into the A and even buy up as some more cards get turned over. So that's kind of the platonic ideal for me. So this question may be answered in multiple ways, given that you're constructing a portfolio and you yourself have to manage risk and portfolio construction for your LPs. But there's also maybe certain views that you have. So I, I, that's my preface to the question, which is, 
What's your view on specialists or sector experts versus generalists? When I was growing up in the business, there's actually some really good data that specialists captured a lot of the early returns, but the generals captured the bulk of the returns. And I still generally believe that. But as the world has evolved, I think the number of areas that are more amenable to specialist investors has grown. I think there are a lot of sectors that look a lot more like biotech than not. You'd never have a generalist firm doing biotech investments. And I'm starting to feel some days like that in AI. When we invested in Data Collective in their first fund in 2011, we really saw this wave coming. We were 10 years too early, but we saw this, but they've done really well. And there's a lot of great stuff in their portfolio. In public markets, we used to say there was a fine line between being right and being early. But in our business, we get paid to be early, I guess. But looking back to 2011, we really leaned in on a data-focused fund because we thought that this was going to be an area that was going to get more and more esoteric. And I think in a lot of areas that are really amenable to generalists, there's really low barriers to entry. So marginal dollars just flood in. Over time, that's a place where my needle has moved a lot from generous. It's not all the way to, to specialists, but it's moved. And look, I'm in the business of constructing a portfolio. I like to have a concentrated portfolio, but most investors at my level are not diversified. They're diversified. They're over-diversified. You pick a, a group of GPs who themselves are diversifying to their tastes, and then all of their diversification aggregates up to my level. So now I'm over-diversified. And then, by the way, I'm investing money on behalf of somebody who may have other people that look like me or other venture funds. And you're adding to that level of over-diversification or diversification. So we try to be as concentrated as we possibly can be, acknowledging that we can't. My smallest fund of funds has six underlying funds, and I'm super excited about that fund. So that's not terribly different from how a VC may pick companies. They care in some cases, some managers care about ownership. And I guess in this case, it's no different. You want to own enough of a fund where if you have a five or a 10x fund, which at your fund size is certainly possible if you pick right, then you can probably return a large portion, if not all of your fund. So in my portfolio, I have on my wall here a little uh, scribble and I, I want to turn it into a plaque. In previous stops, when a single company has returned 10% of a fund, you dance a jig. And that's a great outcome, but you're so diversified that, wow, 10%, that moves the needle a little bit. On my wall here, I've got what I call my heroic companies where Sentinel One in our fund one returned over two thirds of the fund. Data Collective was an early investor and that Data Collective fund is almost 20% of our fund. So we're super excited about that. Similarly, in our second fund, our 2014 fund, Peloton, we were able to sell as that thing was going up. It was a great, great outcome for us. That returned 70% of that fund. That's the kind of stuff that really warms my heart. I want a small handful of companies to really impact my fund and probably three or four companies will drive two thirds of my fund returns. I try to structure to that. Now, whether I'm successful or or not, it's left to the stars, but that's what we aim for with our concentration. So you were early in calling or getting into the micro VC space, which has been a tremendous tailwind for venture. What do you think is the next big thing in venture in the same way that you found micro VC space? What I saw 
in 2003, 4, 5 was a wholesale change in the paradigm of entrepreneurial finance. Cost to get to first revenue is coming down by orders of magnitude. You can build in response to growth, not in advance of growth. And there's all this stuff that was going on in just how you finance startups. And there was a capital vacuum that existed and the micro VCs came in and filled that. I think as I look ahead, I actually wonder... I don't see a capital change dynamic like I did then. But what I do see is I, I wonder if there's more ways to get information. So I think we're not investors, but we're you know kind of longtime friends with Chris Farmer at SignalFire. I think what Chris is doing in terms of building a data infrastructure that captures a lot of information about the world, there's a, a bazillion faint signals. It's what the first round guys call data exhaust. There's an immense amount of data exhaust in the world that is just there to be analyzed. I think AI will help with that. I do think that in 10, 15 years time, my job may be redundant. And I think that would be great. But I think that using informatics in a way that informs decision making is a big opportunity. Do you think there's stages within venture where a data-driven approach works better than others? Ooh, that's really interesting. I, I, I think of the world in terms of, I like to invest pre-Excel, and there's a lot of people invest, invest post-Excel. And what I mean by that is by the time a company has metrics that you can plug in and analyze, that's kind of too late for me, for my managers to be making an initial investment. I think part of that watershed line is really the to articulate it a different way, it's the quantitative versus the qualitative. I think machines are really good at understanding quantitative. I think it's going to take a little while longer, and maybe that's why I'll have a, you know, a job longer than I might not, is understanding the qualitative, because at the end of the day, these are human businesses run by humans selling to humans, and humans are irrational. Like Economics has been wrestling for a century with irrational actors. I do think that there will be a limit to what the earlier you go. So I think kind of mid-stage and later, well, there'll be a lot of opportunity to really leverage data and understand the future in ways that we don't today. So it feels like picking mid to later stage funds may become more quantitative and data-driven. Obviously, you have to get access. Early stage funds like the ones you work with, there's still going to be a lot of qualitative aspects. And I want to ask one question on something you touched on earlier, which is you call it unfair advantage. I call it edge. What do you look for to determine that a manager has that unfair advantage. I'm lucky I live here in Palo Alto and the world's gotten more distributed, but this still really is a money center for the innovation economy. I get to spend a lot of time with particularly entrepreneurs. And one of the things that makes Silicon Valley so special and unique um, and is a durable source of competitive advantage is the people who keep getting recycled into companies. Um, there's this layer of entrepreneurial management that, that has the, the, the kind of received wisdom and knowledge of prior generations and keeps passing that down. I love spending time with people like that because they help me understand who's in the tribe. And that's how I think. Think of people like Sunil Nagaraj, who runs a, a manager of ours called Ubiquity. Sunil came out of Bessemer and I started talking to people in deep tech and human computer interaction. And Sunil's name kept coming up as somebody who really kind of is ingrained. I remember in 2010, going to a data scientist meetup in, in San Francisco. And I was talking to this guy who looked like Hagrid from the Harry Potter movies and was wearing a leather duster coat and an Iron Maiden t-shirt. And he had two PhDs, one from Stanford, one from Carnegie Mellon in data science. And I was like, so who should I be talking to? He goes, well, talk to Matt Ocko at Data Collective. But people like you don't get Matt. 
I'm like, what do you mean people like me? He goes, well, money guys like you. He goes, but for the data crew, Matt is part of our tribe. He's one of our people. And when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, boom, let's go. That's the, where I determine edge is through that kind of soft hands-on stuff. It's a great encapsulation of just the level you need to go to to find managers and how hard it is. I want to ask one penultimate question, which is on that point, how should LPs who maybe haven't had as much access to venture and are starting to get into it, how should they navigate the venture ecosystem when maybe they're not in Palo Alto and able to go to these meetups with data scientists to really understand and get to the source who's important and who's in the industry and who you want to be partnering with? How should people figure out how to navigate the venture landscape? The first thing that pops into my mind when you say it is right before business school, I worked for a year at a hedge fund. And this was by the way, 99. One of the first things a portfolio manager said to me says, you need to understand where you are on the call list. When the analyst makes a call and then the sales guys start calling their people and starting to fill the, the order book, are you the first call or are you the 19th call? Fidelity is getting the first call. Are you getting the second call or are you getting the 19th call? And I was at a bell cow early in my career at Princeton. Like we had a group of people that followed Princeton around. The problem was when people asked us who we liked, we weren't always giving them our best ideas. We were giving them our second and third best ideas because we were taking such big bites of these funds that if the word started getting out that Princeton was interested, we would get crowded out of our own idea. Now, that's an extreme case. Part of what I like doing with my fund is we've got a group of endowments and foundations that invest and use us as a bird dog in the valley. That's been a great model for them to plug capital. But what I tell people is, look, understand where you are. If you've got a bell cow, understand, are you their first call or are you their 15th call? And by the way, this is a labor intensive business. At Princeton, I would say a quarter of our FTEs were doing venture and buyouts, which at the time were 11% of the portfolio. It is a labor intensive, high engagement activity. So you need to find a way in and then pull on some strings and spend time here locally. If you're flying out to the Bay Area once a year from Dubuque, that's not gonna work. You gotta have a dedicated person who's spending time here marinating in the entrepreneurial marine layer and understanding the the real questions, not the warmed over conventional wisdom. It's such a great point. And there's now ways to get access. I think in many cases, people should actually be investing through intermediaries because you need to be in it every day to be doing it. But there's plenty of different ways to do venture. Obviously, many firms are now thinking about how they raise for all sorts of investors. So that was fantastic encapsulation of so many different things. One final question that I always ask every investor or person who comes on the podcast is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? (laughs) There's so many different ways to answer this question. I'll give an easy answer, which is I love venture because from my first days, I remember my first trip to California when I was at Princeton's Endowment. It was the first time I'd ever visited California. And I landed at SFO and I came down 280, which anybody who flies in and comes down the peninsula, take 280, not 101. It's so much more picturesque. It's a scenic highway. And, you know, I was a history and English major in college. And I love Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is a kind of quintessential American poet. And he writes this line where he says, in California, I see the genius of the modern, the child of the real and the ideal. And that line popped into my head as I'm coming down 280, surrounded by redwoods, kind of sliding into this 
innovation engine that has driven progress and improved human outcomes in the world for the last 50 years. And I was like, my God, that brought me tingles. And so I do this because I love it and there's nothing else I would rather do. And so that's my easy answer. I will tell you that if you ask me then how I diversify my own portfolio, I will tell you I've come to understand that the entire tax code, and particularly so after Trump, the entire tax code is written for real estate investors. If you can be a real estate investor who understands the tax code, you can build multi-generational wealth. Maybe now is not the time because of prices and uncertainty, but holy smokes, if I could go back and now I was the son of a cab driver and a maid, so I didn't have two nickels to rub together. But if you told me, man, when you're 22 years old, get involved in something, graduating from college, I would have said, shoot, real estate is an unbelievably advantaged asset. That's actually a fantastic barbell in terms of thinking about you can do venture and you can do real estate and those two things, very different risk profiles, but also in, in their own way, building things. That's absolutely right. And by the way, my personal account is not that big as, as a fund to fund investor. We're on the hind teat, but, but the PA is like you just described 85% of it venture through my own investments in my funds and real estate through my kind of home in California and the, the, the house that my parents live in. So, so voila. That's a fantastic encapsulation of both sides of the spectrum. And I think incredible wisdom shared on venture and the evolution of the industry, how you think about it, how such an important emerging part of the space, the micro VC or emerging manager plays a role in this. So this was a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much, Chris, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Great questions. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.